turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we are coming down the home stretch of our study of this letter. Chapter 5 is the last chapter of this letter. And the passage that we're into this morning is continuing the same themes that we've been looking at already through this letter. Namely, what does it look like to live as people who belong to another kingdom when you're planted firmly in this kingdom? To have an allegiance to a kingdom Jesus has come to establish, but that isn't fully here yet. While living as citizens of kingdoms now, here and now, that, that affect your lives, that have a claim on your service and your support in some ways, and, and yet that sometimes are going to be different from the kingdom to which your allegiance ultimately belongs. Peter has been helping his friends understand how to live in that tension. And that picture continues to emerge in the passage we're going to look at this morning. And the theme that he goes to this morning is humility. One, one way to think about what First Peter's all about is just example after example of what makes Christians foreign, alien, exiles as they live here and now in this world. The passage we're looking at this morning adds humility to that list. One of the things that makes Christian communities uh, foreign communities is that they're marked by humility. I mean, that's certainly true in, in some distinct ways in Peter's time. Remains true today. I think we, we value self-promotion and self-protection in our culture. And Peter's going to tell us this morning that God's grace flows to the humble. Our text ends with a command. Clothe yourselves, all of you, he says, with humility toward one another. In this foreign economy, God's grace comes through humility, not self-assertion. And that's the humility we want to be, be thinking about for the rest of this morning. That said, this passage is actually really specific. It isn't talking about humility in general. It's talking about humility in the context of relationships in the local church between the elders who lead the local church and the members who, who belong to the local church. The passage at the very end talks about clothing yourselves with humility only as a way of explaining what it'll take for the picture he's already painted to, to become real. For the elders to serve in the way he's going to describe in our text today and for the members to, to follow those elders in their leadership of the church, everyone has to clothe themselves with humility towards one another, trusting that God's grace comes to us when we do that. So this morning, what I want to do is talk about a humble community. What does it look like? But to follow Peter's lead and specifically talk about the humble community that shows up in the way that leaders lead and members follow. What does it look like to lead with humility and what does it look like to follow with humility? Those are the two things I want us to look at this morning. Now I want to begin by reading these five verses. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read. This is the, the word of the Lord to us this morning from 1 Peter chapter 5. So, Peter writes... I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Here's what he exhorts them to do. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. 
Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. You can be seated. Leaders lead and members follow with humility only when they get that God's grace comes through humility. What would it look like for them to get that? For them to believe, for elders and members to believe that God's grace flows to the humble. I think that's what Peter's trying to, trying to draw us into this morning. I want to start with what he says to leaders. Most of the verses are about leaders. So we're going to spend a little bit more of our time there talking about the picture he paints of, of what a faithful elder looks like in the local church, what their job is, how they should go about doing that job. And then we'll turn to what it looks like to, to follow, I mean, how, to, how to receive a text about elders in a way that, that honors this text and the call of it, and how to, to think about your role if you're not an elder in, in supporting this vision of a church's life together. I'm going to start with these verses on what an elder looks like, and then we'll move to, to what uh, members' responsibilities should be. So, in these first four verses, all of which are about elders, I think what we get is a little hint at what an elder does, something that is it's drawn a lot more fully in other, in other passages. We get a little hint about that here. And then we get a lot more information about how an elder should do their job and why an elder should do their job. So I'm going I'm to just nod towards what the elder's job is because it's built into some of the words that are used here. And then we're really going to camp on how the elders should go about doing their job and why they should go about doing this job in the first place. How and why. But first, what is the job? I mean, what is an elder? I know if you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, perhaps considering Christianity, don't know much about what local churches involve, and you hear this word elder and it looks like a title, uh, that, that might be raising questions for you um, about, about what we mean. It, it is a title. But it isn't a kind of word that we use often, except in, if we're describing someone who's, who's older than somebody else. We don't use that like a title, and so it could be a little bit foreign to you. I just want to make sure you understand what he's doing there. This term, elder, is a term that's used all over the New Testament for an office or a set of responsibilities in the church. It's a position of leadership in the local church that the New Testament writers assumed all local churches would have. It's like a basic component to a local church. And that comes up in, in all sorts of different writers. It's not just Peter's hobby horse. Paul talks about it. Uh, others are talking about this, this passage. It comes up in letters written all over the Roman world. Pretty much anywhere there was Christians being written to, there was elders being talked about and assumed that they were there in their churches. And it comes up in, in the book of Acts, which describes the story of how the local churches first got founded um, right after Jesus left the earth. The, the, all, all across these different kinds of material and different kinds of authors in different locations around the ancient world, elders are assumed to be part of what a local church has, how it's led. What Peter's doing here is using a few words that are often used uh, together as a kind of a package in other places in the New Testament and kind of interchangeably. Sometimes, unfortunately, in our experience, we've separated these terms from one another as if it's different offices. So he uses the term from which we get elder. He uses the term from which we get pastor. And he uses the term from which we get bishop. All right here in these two verses and all applying to the same person. So in these early churches, when Paul was first writing, there was just the one office. It was a leadership office over the church. And sometimes it was described as being an overseer, which is where the word bishop comes from. Sometimes a shepherd, which is where the word pastor comes from, sometimes an elder. So, so what we've got here is, is 
If you, if you put those terms together, someone who's, who's, who's showing some oversight, someone who's shepherding, which is to guide and to nurture and to protect the flock, the picture that comes out of these terms is of an elder ha- having the job of nourishing or feeding the, pe- the church and guiding or leading it. If you break it down, it, it's those two basic responsibilities. The elder's job is to, to cultivate, to nourish, to feed the flock and to, to guide it, to lead it. Now, Peter's only nodding to these responsibilities in the words that he's using. The best place to see these things built out if you want to know more about what an elder does is to go to Paul's letter, 1 Timothy. You can flip over there uh, later this afternoon if you want to and, and see him describing more, in much more detail what an elder does. But it fits really well with the terms Peter's using and what he has in mind. An elder is a leader in a church that's responsible to to feed the church and to guide the church. Now, what Peter really is interested in here, where he spends most of his time, is on how the elders should go about doing that job and why they should do it. How they do, how they do it matters. This is where humility comes into it. Why they do matters. This is also where humility comes into it. Let me show you what he says about how an elder should go about leading. Peter's using three different contrasts to help us see what humble leadership should look like. He starts in verse 2. The command is shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight. There's your command, lead. But from there, he starts to explain more about how that should look. So he says, lead, not under compulsion, but willingly. There's contrast number one. Not for shameful, shameful gain, but eagerly. There's contrast number two. And not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples. There's contrast number three. I want to go one by one and help you see how these contrasts show us what, how an elder should go about leading if the community is to be marked by the humility that God blesses with his grace. How should an elder lead? Well, first of all, an elder should lead willingly, not because he has to. An elder should lead willingly, not because he has to. You can't do what elders are supposed to do in a local church if you only do it by some sort of default because it just sort of happened to you or you felt like you didn't have any options. Last year, one of my boys joined up with a brand new troop of Cub Scouts at his school. Everything was brand new. There was zero organization. The the, the, the troop didn't exist, and so they were forming it. Uh, there was one fellow with a scouting background who signed up pretty quick to be the den leader in Cub Scouts. That's your school's grade unit. That's where they spend most of their time. Fortunately, that was covered quickly. But you also needed pack leaders, assistant den leaders, and like two or three other organizational leadership positions that none of us had come that night expecting to sign up for. So, uh, you know, as, the, as this blank sign-up sheet makes its way around the room and we're talking about who would do what, I mean, you got this circle of guys just sort of shifting from one foot to another, trying to avoid eye contact, you know, no sudden movements that might be misinterpreted as assent to the position. A couple guys find, finally end up saying that they could do it. They're going to share some of these leadership responsibilities. I don't know, maybe they felt guilty or they just cracked under the pressure of a socially awkward moment and gave in. But you can imagine how that went. Like the den leader did a great job of organizing the stuff that was going on at his level. He really wanted to. He, he was a scout. 
I don't think we had two emails for in a whole year from the pack leader who was supposed to be doing his side of the, or the, of the team of pack leaders, none of whom stepped up for responsibility. You can imagine it didn't go well because they didn't want to do it. And the same thing applies in a local church. I mean, if you, if you feel like you're forced to it, or you've got to do it just because somebody asked you to, or you knew it had to be done, or you thought it was expected of you, or whatever else... Uh, you won't be able to lead well in the way that elders are supposed to lead. One of the good signs when we're identifying new elders is, as, as one uh, friend put it, they want the ball. They're eager to take the shot. You know, they see an opportunity, they want in on it. When they see an opportunity, they'll know it has costs, but the opportunity matters more than the costs that that opportunity brings. So they want to put in the work it'll take to prepare to teach or to disciple somebody weekly one-on-one or to be in the room when somebody needs counsel or care. It's a good sign that they're, that, that, that they're called to be an elder by God when, when they do it willingly, not because they were forced to it. Now that said, that's just contrast number one. Contrast number two shows us that it actually matters. what You have to want it, yes, but it matters what you want in this work. Remember what he's doing here. We know because we've read to the end. He's talking about humility and what a humble community looks like. And how humility shows up in the life of the leaders of that community. How important the leaders leading with humility is for a community to experience and and thrive in God's grace. So it matters why a leader is willing to do this work. And the next two contrasts show us why that's so important. The next contrast is, yeah, you have to want to, you have to want this work, but not because you get paid for it. You can't want this work only because of the money. You have to want it for love. He says, do this work not for shameful gain, he puts it, but eagerly. It's a word that that gets at this drive that's in you, a desire, a love for the work itself that is bigger to you than what you might get from it. Now, now there are definitely places in the New Testament where, where, where people say it's important to take care of those who spend time shepherding the church when they spend enough time shepherding the church that it would that, that it would prevent them from having income elsewhere we've we've preached on those when we've come across them in letters they're, they're not hard to find uh those texts are there it's sometimes when you have the resources and the people available it can be a wise decision to have pastors on staff of a church where that's possible there's a lot of benefit that comes from having people who can spend their whole day job if you will focusing on how to improve things and how to organize resources and people and administer them in a, he- in a healthy way. That's good where it's possible. But that is not the same thing as saying that being a pastor is a profession or that we should approach it like we'd approach a job in the business world or the academy. I mean, a lot of times in the business world, I mean, you're, you're really focused necessarily so on climbing ladders, right? On, on attaining new ranks as you move up in your career. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. It's celebrated and it's fine. Sometimes in the business world, you know, you use one offer to leverage another one into a a better offer. Sometimes you spend a lot of time negotiating your salaries and making sure that you're getting what you're worth and, 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 and only giving what you're paid for and not any more than what you're paid for. And the danger in that, in that setting often is that you end up with with misaligned interests. You end up with an employer who's got a set of interests and an employee who's got a set of interests and they're not always on the same page about how that goes. And it it can create a kind of us versus them relationship. 
And I think that's, that can be toxic in the business world, right? Nobody wants it to work that way. But it is absolutely destructive in the church. Where that creeps in, you've got major problems that flow out of it. When the church is seen as a source of income and the pastor, is, so, so that for the pastor, that's who the church is to them. And the pastor is seen mainly as an employee where to the church, that's who the pastor is to them. Then what you've lost is the, is the member-on-member relationship of love that's supposed to bind all of us to one another at a more fundamental level than any other kind of relationship we have with each other. And an elder, even if they're going to receive some compensation, an elder's got to be doing that work because they love it. It's got to be work they'd want to do even if they never received anything. Such that maybe, maybe you'd, have, you'd only be able to do a, a little bit of it because you'd have to have a job somewhere else to provide for your family, but you'd still want to do it. And your income only allows you to do it even more. Uh, one of my pastoral mentors, I, I love the way he used to put this, Scott Patty, Grace Community Church, he used to say in a staff meeting sometimes, guys, remember, the church doesn't exist to provide us with jobs. I just think that's a wonderful simple, pithy, true statement about how pastors who are actually paid to do their work should think about the local church. That's not what it is. It's bigger than that. It's precious, not just to the pastor, but ultimately to Jesus. It belongs to him. So can you see the humility that's necessary for this to work? Elders have to look at their congregations not as a source of something they want, but as an opportunity to pour out love into them. Now, here's one more contrast before we move even further into these, into these motives that should drive elders. The other contrast that Peter uses. So he said, you got to do it willingly, not under compulsion. You got to do it eagerly, not for gain, but because you love it. And then finally he says, you got to do this work as an elder, not domineering over people, but being examples. I think what that contrast means is it matters why you want to be an elder. It can't be because you're on a power trip. It can't be because you really like the, the rush that you get when somebody does what you say. It can't be because maybe you aren't listened to in other areas of your life and you're looking for an arena in which you have some control. It can't be about the ability to play puppet master with anybody's life. What Peter's saying is that you've got to lead by persuasion, not coercion. By attraction, not by force. This is an, the image of an elder here is an important one. He, he foregrounds shepherding and leading and oversight. It's important to lead. But not in this way that's like a, some sort of big brother who's always watching for absolute conformity or, or some, sort of, uh, some sort of approach that's checking under every rock, looking for every detail, expecting that when he says jump, you only ask how high. The elder that he's talking about leads with humility with a life that's, and a teaching that's open to other people to observe, that's lived out in front of them, that invites them into it, that's, that's among them, not in some ivory tower, cloistered away, sending out directives. And I think that only comes when the, when the elder knows, the pastor knows, that the work of changing people is actually only ever God's work, that the Spirit sanctifies so it has the kind of humility to know his limits. Domineering was never going to work because everything that really matters to us in the, the transformation we pray for and hope for in people's lives is going to be something God has to do. 
It's going to be not because our words were framed just right or our demands came with just the right backing power, but because God's Spirit changed hearts. So we lead mostly by invitation and appeal, not by command. So here we have these three contrasts. Hopefully it's clear enough at this point. Three contrasts trying to explain how do elders in a humble community where everyone's clothed with humility towards one another, how do elders lead? One of the things you've noticed in these three contrasts, I hope, is that motive really does matter. We've already been touching on it a little bit in these, just in the three contrasts, but this motive question, why an elder does his work, comes out especially in verse four. This is where I wanna, I wanna focus a little bit before we move to, to members. So he's been talking about, he's been doing a kind of profile or a job description, you will, if, if you will, a candidate description for the kind of, leadership that the church needs then in verse 4 he goes to why the elder is driven to the work that he's driven to do when the chief shepherd appears he says you will receive the unfading crown of glory the shepherding Peter's calling people to do in their churches takes its cues from the shepherding of Jesus friends this this is is absolutely crucial and I want to show you two things about the motive that should drive an elder in his work if Christ is our model. So what Peter's doing here is describing elders and then he goes to Jesus to explain where he's coming from. So the motive that should drive elders is they have been captured by a vision of the love Jesus has shown as the chief shepherd and their hope is focused on what Jesus will give them as chief shepherd. In both cases, their work is driven by who Jesus is to them, first and foremost. Let me show you how this works. He said that, he's he's called Jesus the chief shepherd. I think what Peter's doing here is remembering something he heard Jesus say. Peter would have been one of the people who heard most everything Jesus ever taught. He lived with him, walked with him, uh, saw him doing all of his miracles and was right there on the front row for all of his major teachings. And in John chapter 10, when Jesus talks about what he came to do in the world. One of the images Jesus gives is of the good shepherd. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And then he goes on to say what he means by by being a good shepherd as opposed to one who isn't good. He says in John 10, let me just read for you a couple of verses here. In John 10, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, the hired hand the one who doesn't own the sheep, he sees a wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them because the hired hand didn't get paid to die in the jaws of a wolf. I mean, who could blame him? They aren't his sheep. He was there to provide a service. He'd been paid to provide and no more. But Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is a good shepherd. He's different. For him, being a shepherd came with laying down his life as a package deal. Because for Jesus, being a shepherd, using this image of the shepherd is really just one way he's trying to help our hearts connect with and understand the message that we call the gospel. That Christ is not just an ordinary man, but he was God himself who took on a human person so that he could live a life perfectly obedient to the Father, a life that is worthy of him, a life that we've failed to live. And then die a death on purpose that he meant to die so that those of us who haven't lived the perfect lives we were meant to live could be forgiven, 
could have our punishment for our sins transferred to him and borne completely by him. Jesus is a shepherd who, who, for, for whom death for the sheep was part of the plan. Willingly, he says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. It's part of what I came to do. Now, when shepherds in the local church, when their hearts have been captured by what Jesus has done for them, when they've spent a lot of time looking at this picture of his love, they realize that that leading with Jesus as your cue means a kind of foreign or alien leadership. Leadership in this world gives you first dibs. It gives you access to the power brokers. It gives you the best seats, the inside track to favors, and whatever else, fill in the blank. Oftentimes that's what we, what we like about leadership when we get it, is that we're in the room with the people who can change things. But, but Jesus' model of leadership, Jesus' shepherding of us, is a completely foreign model. It's alien. And when your heart has been captured by that model, well, the same thing should happen that happens anytime your heart is captured by something. When you really fall in love with a, a, a portrait that's been painted for you by someone else's life, when you really like someone and you're drawn to them and you, and, and you think that the way they do things is the way you'd like to do things, I mean, it starts to show up in, in your own behavior. It starts to affect how you talk, what you read, what, how you dress. I mean, when you're drawn to someone as a model, it changes you. I think what Peter is saying by by citing the chief shepherd here and by pulling from that conversation with Jesus about what the good shepherd looks like is that when your own heart is captured by his shepherding of you, you say, that's beautiful. I want to do that. The chief shepherd shapes the tone for his under shepherds. Why should you elder in this way? Well, partly it's because your heart's been captured by what the chief shepherd did for you. The other thing I want to mention is the hope that's focused on the reward that chief shepherd has promised you. That's what Peter says in verse four. You'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Elder like this, willingly, not because you have to, eagerly, not because you can get something from these people, not domineering over them, but, but being a good example to them. Lead like this because the chief shepherd's coming back and when he comes, you get the reward he's promised you. You can lead like this with a kind of humility that's willing to pour yourself out for the people you lead because you know Jesus is ultimately gonna give you what no one else could. You can lead without exploiting other people, without using them just as some sort of platform to get what you want, only when what you really want is not something they could ever give you anyway. When you know there was just no chance what I need and want most of all was gonna come from anybody I'm leading. When you know that the money you might get or the affirmation from adoring members you might get or the feeling of strength from having others do whatever you say, it's not gonna be enough for you. It belongs among the withering grass that Peter talked about back in chapter one. It isn't enough. You know that even the quick hit of pleasure you might get from things like that isn't gonna last, can't satisfy you. So you want what Jesus can give and nothing less. And when that's what you want, when your hope is focused there, then you can lead like Jesus did. I think this is the picture of humility that Peter is painting for us in our, among, that, we should, that we should have and seek among our leaders. That leaders leading with humility helps to create a community marked by the humility that is a conduit to, of, in our lives for God's grace. Now having said all that, 
I get that most of you aren't elders. I maybe you've been wondering all this time what this has to do with you. And I want to call you back if that's where you've been. And lock in here because now we're going to start applying it. All right? I want to, I want to, I want to uh, phase two of the sermon here moves into, into your life. I think that what we've said already about elders has huge ramifications for you. It is absolutely for you. And my burden now is to help you see why. What would it look like for you to follow with humility? Peter's describing a humble community where their relationships with one another are marked not by power struggles and self-interest, but by humility. He's promising that God's grace flows to the humble. He's described what humility looks like among leaders. What does it look like among those who follow them? I want to give you three examples of what this picture means for you. And the first two examples that I'm going to give you under how to follow with humility, the first two are just implications of what I've already said. It comes out of what he said to these leaders. And then the third thing I want to say comes out of verse five. I'm going to quickly do, these, do a couple implications for you of what I've already said about how elders are supposed to lead. Here's the first one. The first reason I think this is important for you to pay attention to is that you should look for a church that has elders like this. Not perfect men, but humble men who are doing their best, praying to God for his grace to lead willingly and eagerly and by example. If you're visiting with us at Trinity uh, and looking for a new church community, you'll want to know what we think our job is and how we're trying to do it. Hopefully, this has helped you get a better sense of at least what our aspirations are, what our targets are, what we're praying towards, and we'd be happy to follow up with more conversation. Many of you are already members at Trinity, but I mean, unfortunately, you're going to be moving on at some point. And it seems like that's just a lot bigger part of our church's story than what any of us want it to be, but part of where he's put us and, and the kind of revolving door that, that this Vanderbilt Belmont University community is. Many of you are going to be moving on after you finish training. When you move on, you're going to want to look for a church that has elders like this. This is the kind of thing you're going to want to ask about as you start to visit places. That's the first reason you need to know this. The second reason you need to know all this stuff about about what it looks like for for leaders to lead with humility is that members, I'm going to talk especially to you members here, one of the most important ways you can serve our church is to pray that our elders will lead with this sort of humility. That's one of the best things you can do to serve the church overall. Because, frankly, an elder's leadership does set the tone in many ways for the, for, the, for the culture of the community that they lead. It's one of the opportunities God has given them. It's how he's called them to serve. But I hope you'll, you've noticed as, as we've talked about this job description that what we're talking about here is not a list of skills. It's not a list of certifications or de- degrees acquired. It isn't a list of resume accomplishments. It, it's a list of fruits of the Spirit. So lead like this takes a miracle. So use this text as your prayer guide for us. Friends, it's a miracle when a sinful, glory-hogging, self-loving, loving man like, like me, like the other elders, I'll speak for them, leads not for gain or for power, but from love and service. Pray for us that God will do that miracle. Pray for us for wisdom. I mean, do you notice part of what comes out of our job description in this text about, comes out about our job description is that we have to live in this balance, in this tension between oversight 
that Jesus holds us accountable for. And leading by example. Between leading, but not forcing. A call to direct, but not to domineer. And friends, that just, that just takes a wisdom we don't have on our own. It, it feels more often than not like there's just a lot more ways to get that wrong than to get that right. So, over here, you're coming on too strong. Over here, you're staying back too long, holding back when you should have stepped in. And sometimes it just, it just feels like it's impossible to make the right decisions often enough. Pray for us to have a wisdom that we don't have on our own as we navigate the very unique challenges that each leadership opportunity provides. Pray for us because of the burden of knowing that Jesus holds us accountable for what we do. I don't think it just seems like there's more ways to get this wrong than to get this right. I think that there are a lot more ways to get this wrong than to get this right. And that when we make our mistakes, we are, we are sometimes sinning, failing the bride of Christ that is precious to him, that he gave up his own life to purchase and sanctify. And we believe that Jesus is coming and that he holds leaders accountable for, for the charge he gave them. So pray for us as we carry that burden of knowledge. We think about it often. And we will need Jesus to stand for us in our failures. So pray that he will. You can use this text in your life to help you know what you're looking for. You can use this text to help you know how to pray for the elders God has given you. And the third way to respond in, to, to this text, the third way and the way that comes out in verse five, this is where we want to spend the rest of our time, on how to follow with humility. The third way to respond is to trust your elders, to actually follow them. Verse five is really straightforward and simple, isn't it? You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Peter tells us there how to follow with humility. Now, I don't know exactly what he means by younger. Different people uh, take that different ways. And one guy that I read says he thinks it's literally someone who's younger, like on the younger side of the average age in the church, and that he's addressing the younger because they would be more likely to resist authority, more likely to sort of uh, having not lived enough life to sort of hold on to their own self-reliance and think they could do it better than their elders and, and what have you. And maybe that's what it is. Most of the people that I read believe that it's actually just a reference that's juxtaposed to elders for everyone else who's in the church and that maybe he's talking about younger because the churches to whom he were writing mostly were, uh, the people who weren't elders mostly were younger than their elders and that that's why he just used that term as a, as a way of balancing out the elder. No one's really sure, but we do know that that the command he gives here is given in other places in the New Testament to everybody. Hebrews 13 says, be subject to your elders, same as Peter does, and doesn't give this kind of qualifier to it. It's important for people who, are, who belong to local churches to, to follow the elders who lead their local churches. So what does he mean when he says be subject to your, to your elders? Friends, I think we've got to answer that based on what we already know from this letter. Uh, I think what we know from this letter will help maybe ease any discomfort you feel when you read this text, when you hear this, be subject to your elders. I mean, there's a lot in us, especially in our setting, that resists authority commands like this one. Because I think, rightly, we jumped all the ways authority has been abused. 
We think about the times in which it's been used to exploit people and get from them rather than give to them. So we need to remember some things we already know from this letter before we're ready to press into what this command does mean. We know from this letter that Christ is the chief shepherd. That ultimate allegiance always goes to him, not to an emperor. He said that earlier. Not to a husband, not to a master, not to an elder. Ultimate allegiance goes to Christ, the chief shepherd and king over his kingdom. If there's ever a conflict, as sometimes there will be, you obey Christ. I think we should also remember the immediate context here. What Peter said about what an elder is and does. He said himself that it's an elder's, not an elder's job to tell you everything that you should do. An, el- an elder who tries to, do, to control every area of your life is an elder who's overstepping what God's called him to do. He's moving from example towards domineering. So we need these qualifications to sort of pump the brakes on any, on any kind of uh, speeding away from this text you might be tempted to do right now. All that said, I think the bigger risk to us, given our posture, our culture's posture towards authority, our bigger risk to us would be to water down this command because we emphasize autonomy so often and hold it so tightly. We're suspicious of leaders in general. And friends, I think that, that, that if, if that impulse is in you now and you hear this command to be subject to your elders, one thing to remember is this bigger context. He's talking about humility here. The command to humility is part of what makes us aliens. Our primary goal in life is not self-protection or self-promotion. We trust our lives ultimately to God who gives grace to the humble. So that means the choice you're facing as a Christian is one of whether or not you will willingly give up your autonomy because you trust God's grace comes to the humble. What would it look like for you to willingly give up your autonomy, trusting in God's grace and following your leaders? I think given the context here, that what it would look like is for you to have a default posture of trust in them and a habit of inviting their influence in your life. What it would look like for you to follow your leaders, for you to be subject to your elders, knowing what he said, how he's qualified to role, what he doesn't mean by elder, what he does mean by elder, is that you would have a default posture of trust and that you'd have a habit of inviting them into your life. Let me say just a couple words about each one of those and we'll close. I think I've mentioned already, I think a default mode for many of us is suspicion of leaders. Friends, that, that can be a form of pride. That can be us trusting ourselves more than we trust other people. I've tried to say it as clearly as I can. I don't, I'm not, Peter's not saying, I'm not saying that you should trust anything that you hear, that you should sort of adopt a willing naivete that just takes whatever comes. But, but, but what we are saying is that in the church, with elders aiming at the posture Peter's been talking about, it is good to trust them. When you know that your elders aren't in it for the money, they're not trying to get something out of you, when you know that they aren't trying to control your life, when you just haven't seen them be on a power trip, that's not who they are. When you know they have a character you trust and generally want to follow. And ultimately, when you know that they've been given to you because you're in this church by Jesus who wanted you to have them, when that's who they are to you, well, that doesn't mean you do whatever they say, much less that you're commanded to. But it does mean you should default to trusting them. 
rather than subjecting them to a kind of case-by-case analysis, am I going to listen to them this time? That always keeps them in the judgment seat. I think you should default to trust with them and I think that you should invite their influence in your life. That's the other thing. I think what it means to be subject to your elders, given all that Peter said here, is that you would, you would use them as a tool that God has given so that the church can have what it needs. And not just the church, big picture, large scale, but you, as member of the church, can have the guidance that you need in your life. What this could look like is you being intentional about using the elders as a resource. Part of leadership for them is going to be teaching. Part of it is going to be making decisions for life for the church. But it can be much more than that. Shepherding can be personal. It can be something God uses to help you navigate your life. And part of what it would look like for you to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another would be to ask them. Because, friends, elders are told in this very text not to domineer. They're told that, that, that they need to lead by example. That means in almost all cases... They're not going to force themselves if they're, if they're following this text into what you're facing. They're serving willingly and eagerly and never, being, and never resenting being asked to listen, though. They want you to ask them. They want to be in it with you. And asking them in can be the kind of humility, expressing kind of humility Peter's calling for here. And overall, even beyond all of that, friends, inviting elders into your life is an expression of trust in God who gave them to you. It's not just about you knowing you don't have everything you need. It's about you knowing you need them because God says that healthy local churches have elders who shepherd in this way. That among all the other resources that you have out there at your disposal, this one is special to God and a conduit of his blessing. It's not because the elders are above mistakes. It isn't because they're experts on what you're facing. It's about solidarity with God's purpose in the church and how he uses this office to help his people. And that's what makes using the elders an expression of humility. If it was about them, if it was about them, it would, it would still be putting you in the driver's seat of trying to decide who you need and what you need in order to make the decision that you're making. That's not about humility. That's about good judgment. But, but, but inviting elders in who, who you invite in simply because they're elders... Is, a, is an expression of humility towards the God who gave them to you and a trust that he can use them despite themselves and their limitations to help you. What Peter's painting here is a picture where people are clothed with humility towards one another, where elders lead with humility, not trying to get what they can out of people and move on, where, where, where members respond with humility, inviting elders in even though they know these men aren't perfect and don't have everything they need because ultimately what all of us are looking to is the blessing that only God can give us. The promise that God's grace flows to the humble. This deference is a path to blessing. And friends, it's a miracle when any of us relate to one another this way. I want to pray that God will help us, help the elders to lead with this kind of humility and help the members to follow with this kind of humility. Join me now as we pray for that. Father, we, uh, we trust that, that what you've said here is good for us, necessary even, but we also feel it as too much. We feel it as too much because we know ourselves. We know our hearts love autonomy, that we naturally seek our own, and that the gospel's call to set aside our interests and to put others' interests first is a call to death of the old self. We pray that your spirit 
would put an end to our flesh that resists this kind of life together and give us grace and humility and trust to live in the way you've called for in this passage. I pray that you would guide our elders as they do the work you've given them to do, protect them from themselves and give them hearts that are motivated by love for Jesus and a desire for what he brings us. I pray for our members as they decide how to make use of this resource you've given them, that they would do so with humility and wisdom too. And that you would ultimately help us to be for one another, never against one another. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.